The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. We are continuing our adventure in the book of Ecclesiastes in this series that we've dubbed A Life Worth Living. If you look at that graphic there, you'll notice that there's a question sign at the end of the series title. It acknowledges that the answers we need about the meaning of our lives aren't, aren't given up so easily by this book that can seem so cynical and appears to deconstruct meaning rather than point us towards it. You see, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is framed and cloaked in mystery. And, and it is framed with questions. So we've kind of acknowledged that with our question sign in our series. We're asking questions. We're seeking understanding. Please make your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to be right at the end of chapter 6 into chapter 7. So we're going to go from verse 10 of chapter 6 to verse 14 of chapter 7. The majority of the, our passage today is a series of Proverbs. A proverb is a concise saying meant to capture wise counsel in a memorable way. At first glance, the proverbs in this section appear to be a collection of random sayings, as if the preacher was just kind of taking pieces and putting them together. Now, a proverb is a tool that requires some skill to wield. What's going to help us to get our hands around these proverbs is the questions the preacher is asking. Questions which, as we read, I want you to note questions which come near the beginning of the text and then again at the end of the text. As you're going to see, these are questions that every one of us needs to be asking, even though they sound a little strange when the preacher asks them. But we need to be asking them if we're going to find a life worth living here under the sun. So let's give our attention to Ecclesiastes 6.10 to 7.14. This is God's good, holy, and wise word. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10, through to chapter 7, verse 14. Whatever has, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what, what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. 
For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is, is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a comedy science fiction franchise written by a man named Douglas Adams. It started as a radio play. Who remembers those? Oh my goodness, yes. I see one or two hands. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. Showing my age, no. Remember those radio plays on RGR, you know. But it started as a radio play, but it also spawned a series of books, uh, a number of television shows, and in a movie, about 2005, I think. I was introduced to the series several years ago by somebody who's nerdier than me. Yes, seriously, I mean... (laughs) I mean, if you met him, you'd understand what I mean. He's a great guy, though. One of the many imaginative characters that you meet in A Hitchhiker's Guide is Deep Thought. Deep Thought was the most powerful computer ever built with one exception. It was designed by hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings who wanted to know the answer to life, the universe, and everything. You see what I mean about nerdy? This is, this is, this is deep stuff here. I mean, Douglas Adams is hilarious, by the way. After 7.5 million years of deep thought, the computer finally provided the ultimate answer. The ultimate answer was 42. It was at that point of receiving the the answer to life, the universe, and everything, the descendants of those who designed deep thought recognized that no one knew what the question was. So deep thought was then recommissioned to design the most powerful supercomputer with no exceptions to discover what the ultimate question was. Now, as weird as that is, it seems that life imitates art. We're very much living in the age of artificial intelligence. Uh, Sean and Sheldon, with delight, this, this, this past week, introduced me to ChatGPT. It's an advanced chatbot that responds to questions about many subject areas uh, with detailed and articulate responses. It actually is something to see. I was just probing, just asking questions yesterday about Proverbs and just asking more and more complex questions and this thing would seem to think and then respond to me. What I found fascinating though, in addition to what it can do, is the limitations that the creators concede. May occasionally generate incorrect information. May occasionally produce harmful, con- harmful instructions or biased content. Limited knowledge of world and events after 2021. In other words, you definitely do not want to live by the answers you get from ChatGPT. As surprising as it may be, thinking about deep thought and ChatGPT offers us insight into how we need to think about this passage in Ecclesiastes. This ancient text does not depend on knowledge of recent world events to provide answers. Because this is God's word, we don't have to worry about being given incorrect information, incorrect instructions, or harmful instructions. Yet the wisdom offered in this text isn't going to serve us very well if we lose track of the questions 
that it is given in response to. And it is limited. Wisdom doesn't remove the mystery from life, nor put us in control of it. That's not its purpose, but it is worthwhile. It is better than the alternatives out there and those in our own heart. And perhaps most importantly for this passage, wisdom resides within limits that we must learn to embrace. A part of the wisdom that God wants us to live with in in this passage in Ecclesiastes is an awareness of our own limitations. The last three verses of chapter 6 are transitional. Therefore, they're going to function kind of like a conclusion for the first half of the book and then an introduction for the second half. So the preacher has had us considering the question, what lasting profit do we gain as human beings from all of the hard work that fills our lives? Now he's going to ask some other questions. So look with me in your text at verse 10. In that verse, he's going to remind us of some limits. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and, and that he is not able to distru- dispute with one stronger than he. The poetic language here echoes the truths that the preacher has mentioned before and reaches back to the first chapter of the Bible where God creates and names things. We cannot change the nature of things from how God made them. And the present was already determined in the past by the one who made and knows all things. You know, we we can in some moments think of ourselves as so powerful, as shapers of our own destinies. But the one who created us knows our limitations. And we cannot contend with him. In verses 11 and 12, the preacher asks three questions. They are, in effect, rhetorical questions. The answers are implied as negative. There is no advantage to more words. They're just more breath. No one knows what is good for us during our freeting lives, because we are but breath. And no one can tell us what will happen to us tomorrow or in the future. Well, no human being at any rate. The sum of these verses is this. We have limited strength, limited knowledge, limited lifespans, and limited perspective. So where does that leave us? Should we surrender to fatalism, say, you know, whatever will be, will be, and just live by our appetites and feelings? Should we surrender to pessimism and hope for little to insulate ourselves from disappointment? The preacher does neither. We may not be able to determine what is good in an absolute sense. We cannot know whether tomorrow will bring prosperity or adversity. But wisdom can lead us to what is good in a relative sense. What is better than the alternatives. And it can teach us how to respond to the good and the bad that come our way. Among its many lessons, Ecclesiastes teaches us these twin truths. God has limited us, but he shepherds us. He's limited us. He's put boundaries around us. We have limits to what we can know and do, but he shepherds us. He cares for us. And we must learn to humbly follow his guidance by faith. So here in chapter 7, the preacher begins to answer the two key questions he has asked. So those, those three questions really Summarized down to two key questions. Who knows what is good for us? That's the first one. Who knows what is good for us? And the second is, and who can tell us what will happen to us? Here we're giving wisdom. In chapter 7, we're given wisdom for living within the limits. And that's the title of this sermon. In these verses, we learn three truths about wisdom. These three truths are commended to us. Wisdom learns from the end of life. 
We're going to see that in chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Wisdom lives sensibly throughout life. We're going to see that in verses 5 to 12. And wisdom looks at God's sovereign work. So that's the shape of it this morning. That's what we're going to be getting into. So let's go right at the first one. Wisdom learns from the end of life. So as we step into this text, what we need to do is keep that first key question in view. Who knows what's good for us? Even within the limits that the preacher has traced, there's good to be found. If you scan this text, you'll notice over the verses we're going to cover, this is beyond one to four now, you're going to see the word better a lot. You're going to see the word good several times. In total, in the original language, the word good or more good, i.e. better, is said nine times in the Proverbs that are offered here. The preacher starts out by pointing us to the superiority of a good name over precious ointment or expensive perfume. Now, Proverbs pack a lot into few words and can have layers of meaning. The Gospels tell us the story of a woman who came and as an act of love anointed Jesus' feet with this expensive uh, jar of perfume that that, you know, when, when, when some of his stingy disciples complained, they were like, look, this thing is valued almost at a year's wages for a worker, for a regular worker. Perfume was a symbol of wealth and a way of storing it. So the preacher here could be underlining the warnings he's recently given about pursuing wealth and echoing the wisdom of Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. But... The value of perfume might not be the only characteristic he wants to bring to our minds. To put it plainly, it matters little how good you smell and how well you can put yourself together if your reputation stinks. In our fleeting lives, a good reputation is worth building and maintaining. Yet, aren't all of us tempted at times to act impulsively and thoughtlessly in ways that could adversely affect our reputation? It's interesting, I, I, I came across this quote by, by Warren Buffett, of all people, the American investor. He says this, It takes 20 years to build a reputation and 5 minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. You see, here's the thing, our reputations don't merely affect us. They affect those associated with us, primarily our family members. Some of us have gone through life experiencing second-hand favor, because of the good name of a parent or a friend. I was talking to somebody the other day who was having trouble getting something done and then mentioned the name of a friend in that context and all of a sudden, the person's posture towards them changed. I have a friend here who's be, who used to go to the bank with me sometimes years ago and would just be amazed at how much help I got at the bank. But part of that is my parents taught me well to treat people with respect. So I, in interacting with people, it wasn't just a transaction. I would greet them. And over time, I was getting to know them. And it's amazing when things were difficult, how those people would be glad to help me. Not because it was their job, but because they felt cared for. And the truth is, we have to acknowledge, when it comes to reputation, that when those who are close to us have a bad reputation, we can have the opposite experience of favor. It can make our lives harder. We can struggle because we're trying to overcome what somebody close to us did. For believers, this emphasis on a good reputation has greater weight because we all represent Jesus to the world around us. The New Testament calls us to adorn the gospel by our conduct rather than living in ways that bring dishonor to the word of God. 
If people speak evil of us, they should be slandering us, not merely stating the obvious. But mercifully, the scriptures also reveal a Savior who is in the business of rehabilitating reputations through repentance. Many of you would know the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and you'd understand in the context that tax collectors were extortionists. They had a horrible reputation in their communities. But in, in, in the Gospels, we see how Zacchaeus meets Jesus, turns to repentance, and his reputation is rehabilitated. So we thank God for that mercy. The wisdom the preacher turns to next in the second half of this Proverbs, though, is entirely unexpected. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. What? I mean, that's a conversation stopper right there. You know, you're milling around and somebody says something like that and you're like, okay, who else is around to talk to? You see, neither the wisdom of this second saying nor its connection to the first is immediately obvious. So what is the preacher up to? He's not peering random wise sayings. At the very least, I think he's saying this. A good name is a better asset than expensive perfume. And similarly, the day of death is a better teacher than the day of birth. The shock of that second proverb, de- proverb demands our attention. Thankfully, the preacher offers some clarification over the next few verses. But even that clarification is hard to digest. He goes on to say, in effect, it's better to go to a family home for a meal after a funeral, as uncomfortable an, as, as an occasion that is, than to go to Frenchmen or insert the all-inclusive premium party of your choice. But if you look at Instagram, if you look at the social pages in a newspaper, you'd think that parties are the place to be. The preacher says sorrow is better than laughter. And we immediately start to worry about his mental health because he's sounding depressed, isn't he? But he explains why he's making these counterintuitive statements. Unless we live to see Jesus' return, we all will die one day. Being reminded of that while, we are still, while we're still alive, while we still have time, benefits us more than forgetting all of our troubles with food and liquor, with dancing and laughter. Death sobers us up. It brings clarity. The writer David Gibson helps us to track with the preacher. He says, a coffin is a better preacher than a crib. When life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. The things that don't really matter, but which we gave so much time to, now seem empty and pointless. The lives we touched and the generosity we showed and the love we gave and received now means so much more. At a funeral, and think about your experiences at funerals. At a funeral, we come face to face with the fact that life is brief and unpredictable. We see the sum of a person's choices. Their wisdom or folly is clearly revealed or poorly concealed in their eulogy. Have you ever noticed that? That some stories just seem to have these huge gaps, some life stories, where we're trying not to talk about the ugly. We're trying not to talk about the things the person did that their family hated. So we kind of talk around and say, Oh yeah, he loved cars. He loved cars? Really? That's the sum of his life? Oh, he, yes. Yeah, he was a vegetarian, you know. You see, in this we see another connection between the day of death and the reputations we've built. 
Now, have you ever been to a funeral and been inspired to love your family better and pour your life out for those around you? Yeah, I, I have some memorable experiences of going to funerals and just being amazed at how this person just brought people into their life and cared for them. And that just started to affect me and say, all right, wow. When my day comes, will people say things like that about me? I've been to funerals. I remember one memorable one, a colleague of my dad's, and all they talked about was the man's work. Even his son came up, and all his son could say was how hard he worked, how early he'd get up in the morning to go to work, and the late hours he'd do, and I was like, wow, it just felt so hollow at that point in time. Especially in the context of Ecclesiastes, where our work is going to be forgotten. I've also heard the brokenness and seen the brokenness that comes from adulterous relationships. Too many funerals in Jamaica, people meet half-siblings for the first time. No, at a funeral, I've never once heard anyone's net worth spoken of. I've never seen that in the paper with the death announcements. You know, John Brown, net worth. I've never seen the properties they've owned listed. But I've heard what their siblings or their children thought of them. The preacher says to us that the sorrow we feel when we lose someone, someone we love, is better for us than empty laughter. Because the pain of loss can teach us to treasure the time that we have and the people and the moments that really matter. It can teach us to spend our lives for God in loving others. It can lead us to a deeper, more substantial joy and a greater appreciation for the kindness of God. I've been amazed just as we've gotten to know people in our, in, in, in our family of churches to meet people who I know have gone through real and just, 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 just heartbreaking suffering, yet to see them have joy. Because you think to yourself that those things are going to just break you in two. There's no way you could live through that and face that. But there's a joy that comes on the other side of mourning. So let's do two things with these Proverbs. Let's do some cultural analysis and then some personal reflection. This text led me to question a trend I've noticed. We rarely speak about funerals anymore these days. They're now called Thanksgiving services or a celebration of the life of such and such a person. Frequently you'll hear the request, cheerful colors only please. And sometimes in the case of a person who anticipated their death, you'll hear that, boy, they didn't want anyone to be sad at their Thanksgiving service. No, there are good intentions behind all that. But my concern is that it feels like we're losing our capacity to mourn, to feel and to express grief, and to make room for others to do so. It feels like we're transforming the day of death from a time where gratitude and grief walk hand in hand beside the coffin to one where grief is politely asked, if possible, to stay away. Now, I haven't done many funerals so far in my time as a pastor, but in the few I have, I've come to recognize that the things I say as a minister on those occasions either give people permission to grieve or deny them that permission. Mourning is something that we need to learn for the sake of our souls because of all it has to teach us about how to live. On a much more personal level, this text confronts our tendency towards escapism, particularly using technology. You see, in this modern age, we can easily create a virtual party atmosphere all the time with our headphones and the endless stream of music or the show of your choice or just sitting down and going through social media. 
Anything to drown out the voice of our own hearts. Anything but silence. We don't want to think. Because we're likely to think about things that we're going to need to mourn over. Loved ones, joy does not come by keeping ourselves too busy or distracted to think. It comes by taking every thought captive to Christ. It comes by thinking about ourselves, our pain, our disappointments, our losses and our failures in light of the good news about Jesus. It comes by believing that whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. It comes by receiving in our heart the assurance that from the Spirit of God that we are God's children. It comes by mourning what we need to mourn and receiving God's comfort. So the preacher says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Wisdom learns from the end of life. Comparisons between wise and foolish people like the one that we just, that I just read in verse 4 continue throughout the next section of this text that we'll consider now. And here's what we'll see. Wisdom lives sensibly throughout life. So we're in verses 5 to 12. In these verses, the preacher will speak to a number of different situations where wisdom is to be chosen over folly. Look at verse 5. Once again, something better is commended to us. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. He's continuing the theme he started, but moving from the value of mourning to the value of correction. And the comparison is vivid. The sound of a rebuke compared to that of songs or laughter. Correction usually feels unpleasant to receive, even when it's given gently. Isn't that the case? You know, sometimes people do a good job of coming to us and just saying, hey, I just wanted to point something out. And still we're just like, oh my... We're waiting for the world to fall on us, kind of thing. But and you're, he's comparing that now to silly songs sung by people who aren't even pretending to have any substance about them. I mean, like, ooh... You know, they're light and they're catchy and they have a great hook that makes you feel good no matter the nonsense you might be doing. When we're rebuked, tension grips our bodies. But laughter, your muscles relax and all those feel-good chemicals in our bodies are released. So which would you rather hear? Rebuke or song and laughter? Again, the imagery helps us evaluate the relative benefits. We can't hear the poetry in the original Hebrew in our translation, but thorns in a fire burn noisily and blaze up quickly. They're quickly consumed and produce little heat for the pot. Only smoke. Hevel. They make no lasting impact. Much like the laughter of fools. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't even like being wrong, much less being corrected. I'd love it to be the case that I, would, I, I were able to see all of my errors and weaknesses and then go and do the necessary work in private and then present myself functional and virtually perfect to everyone around me. But that's not who I am. That's not who any of us are. This proverb is challenging us to learn to value when we are corrected by others who are wise. And the wisdom of that is echoed over and over in the book of Proverbs. This is Proverbs 12.1, and it doesn't mince words. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, 
but one who hates correction is stupid. So what would wisdom look like then? If the rebuke of the wise is a good thing, shouldn't we welcome it? Why would we play defense against something that's beneficial? But we can go further. Shouldn't we seek it out? Yeah, here. All right, go with me. Do you realize that we do not have to wait for rebuke and correction? We can actually invite it. Instead of playing dandishandi with rebuke, we can just walk right up and take it in the face. Okay, maybe the side, maybe not the face. So why, why are so many of us quick to seek mentorship in our careers, yet we seem reluctant to ask others how we can grow personally and spiritually? So we could say to our trusted friend, do you think I use my time wisely? In what ways do you think I could grow in that respect? Or, based on how you see me live, what would you say are my priorities? Or you could ask a friend who's close to you, can you watch how I interact with my children? And give me some feedback on what you see. Do you think I live with my wife in an understanding way? You see, when we invite correction consistently, we make it clear to those around us that they have permission to ask us hard questions and to gently point out areas of sin and weakness. I'd also like to suggest that this proverb can help us to think about what it actually means to be friends in the Lord. If we're truly going to bless each other as friends, we might need more carefully measured rebuke alongside the belly laughter. We might need to be aware that there are moments that are not laughing matters, but require humble questions and correction. The truth is, if we cannot bring corrections to each other, then we have shallow relationships. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Now I've spent a a good chunk of time on those verses. What wisdom are we offered in verses 7 to 10? According to the commentator Douglas O'Donnell, the phrase patient in spirit is the central concept around which everything in these verses orbit. Verse 7 addresses how fraud can turn someone who is wise into an idiot. Oppression in this verse refers to extortion. When we, when we, if we rob others in our greed, if we accept bribes, these corrupt business practices corrupt our own hearts. You know, it's, it's interesting, just watching people's reactions over the last week or two, we are scandalized by the prominent cases of fraud in the news. But wisdom lives with the awareness that we are not immune to such temptation. It takes patience and faith to do things in a way that pleases God, especially in the environment we work in. It also takes patience to see a job through to the end. You know, we can be so proud, so confident in our abilities and our ideas, but it takes patience once you've started, once you've passed that stage of the exciting beginnings to stick it out for the long haul. Though it requires resilience and hard work, reaching the end of a project is better than starting new things over and over. Remember though that this is a proverb. It's not applicable to every scenario. There there are actually things that we should give up on. It requires wisdom to tell the difference between one and the other. Look at verse 9 in your Bibles. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. 
Living in a heavenly world, a world that's unfair and broken and frustrating, presents us with many temptations towards anger, doesn't it? But the warning here is that if we don't learn to slow down that response, anger is going to make its home in our hearts. We will become angry people. We'll become the kind of fools who, who blame everyone and everything for why we're angry. Not too late. Not too late. Not at all. James 1, 19-20 counsels every one of us. Whether we tend to explode in our anger or just nurse it quietly inside. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The moments when we're in danger are those when we feel like our anger is fully justified. When we believe that our anger is righteous. In those moments we need to recognize that we are proud in spirit. C.J. Mahaney in writing on humility says this, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God. The alternative path offered here in Ecclesiastes is the humility of patience. Patience with other people's shortcomings. Patience in suffering. Patience in waiting for God to avenge us and to balance the scales. The final thing that the preacher warns us against here in verse 10 is a little surprising. Nostalgia. I'll accept help here from David Gibson in explaining the folly of thinking this way. Gibson says, maybe the past was better than the present. But when you start asking why was it better, what you are doing is denying the reality of God's presence in the present. If you think things are worse, do you think God is no longer in control? Do you think he hasn't brought you to the point where you are now and that he no longer loves you or has plans or purposes for you? To ask the question in verse 10 is unwise because it forgets about God. Often when we ask this, it's because we are blind to the good things of the present and ignorant of the evil of the past. So, instead of remembering when, when Patty used to cost, and I'm not going to reveal my age here by saying what it used to cost when I was in prep school, we should remember that God is still the one who provides for us each day. There are two more verses that we need to listen to in this section. They both express the value of wisdom and its limits. It, wisdom protects us in a similar way to the way owning resources or having money offers us protection against the unpredictability of life. If you have both wisdom and resources, then that is a great blessing. Wisdom is not going to give you the power to control the world. So it still takes faith to walk in wisdom. Especially when you aren't seeing the outcome that you desire. Some of you have experienced that. You know, I think as, as young, naive Christians, sometimes we get out into the working world and we act with integrity and we think everything is going to work out for us. Because, you know, we're pleasing God. Isn't what they told us in Sunday school? We're pleasing God. And we walk through these disasters and if we're not careful, we become cynical. And we just say, boy, this thing not worth it. But wisdom takes faith to walk out. Though the path of wisdom is difficult to walk, it can preserve your life. Though the path of wisdom requires us to embrace rebuke and to resist being impulsive, it is better than the path of folly. So wisdom learns from the end of life. Wisdom lives sensibly throughout life. And there's one more truth here about wisdom on offer. Wisdom looks to God's sovereign work. 
So look in your Bibles again at verses 13 and 14. Here is the counsel of the preacher. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You see, wisdom is not merely concerned with making our way through this world, navigating as well as we can within the limits. It is also concerned with the one who sets the limits. What comes out in these two verses uh, particularly, it is that particularly when hard times come, it is wise to consider God's work. What does it mean that God has made something crooked? Derek Kidner explains, Verse 13 is not speaking of moral crookedness, but of the shape of things and events which we find awkward, but should accept from God. It includes his judgments, but also presumably many of life's trials, as the next verse suggests. In many ways, and at many times, life appears crooked to us, doesn't it? The illness that won't go away. The debt that we can't seem to overcome. That difficult relationship that we try and we try and it just doesn't seem to improve. The circumstances that always set you back when you think you're about to move forward. God has his way of ordering our lives and sometimes we just cannot figure his ways out. As we learned in verse 10 of chapter 6, we are not able to dispute with the one who is stronger than us. We cannot beat him at arm wrestling. And we cannot try as we might win an argument with him. I don't know if some of you do that in your prayers. You're just like, like you're trying to win an argument with God about why what you want is the best thing. And it's like he's nodding and smiling and saying, uh-huh, tell me more. You know? <laughs> and he's kind of like, when did you become my consultant? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> A part of wisdom is accepting that God rules the world and every aspect of our lives and that we cannot change what he does or understand why he does it. That's a critical dimension to the better perspective offered to us in this passage. Verse 14 teaches that both our good times and bad times are from God's hand. And he governs both in such a way that, as Carolyn Mahaney and Nicole Whitaker explain, we cannot predict and we cannot even fully prepare for life's twists and turns. We don't know what tomorrow will bring and whether it will be a day to enjoy or a day to endure. But whatever he gives, we can respond wisely. So the preacher counsels us, in the day of prosperity, rejoice. I mean, that sounds intuitive, doesn't it? But instead of relaxing, receiving, and reveling in God's gifts, we can refuse to leave our sentry post where we desperately scan the horizon for the first sign of the next trouble. It's not wise on good days to worry about what might go wrong soon. It doesn't protect us. It robs us of joy and makes us tentative and miserable. Those good days are a gift from the hand of our gracious God who gives us all things to enjoy. So enjoy them. And don't assume either that you, you did something to deserve the blessings you're receiving. The assumption that things go well with you when you're pleasing God breaks down entirely when you look at the life of Jesus, God's beloved Son in whom He was always well pleased. If you make that assumption, it'll be hard not to look down on others who are suffering. Because you're going to be standing on your perch of the things you think brought you into blessings and saying, what's wrong with you guys? Just live like I do. 
And you're going to be confused when your bad days come and you're going to be desperate to figure out what you are doing wrong now so that you can fix things. No, simply rejoice in the day of prosperity. And in the day of adversity, consider that this day too is from the hand of God. So when trouble comes, don't be bitter. Be thoughtful. This is Mahaney and Whitaker again. Christians are not called to merely grit their teeth and bear hardship. Neither should we try to escape reality. Rather, we must consider and interpret our suffering biblically. We must think straight about crooked days. Now, we have much more light with which to consider the work of God than the original readers of Ecclesiastes did. We not only have the work, God's work in creation, which has intricacies that we cannot possibly understand. It's fascinating that when God confronted Job in his confusion and in his suffering, when Job wanted to contend with God, God just started pointing out things in creation. He's like, look at that. You think you can make that? You think you understand that? You think you can manage that? And over time, Job was like, whoa, 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 all right, all right, all right. I placed my hand over my mouth. I've spoken of things I didn't understand. So we have that light in front of us. But we, we, not only that though, we, we also have the individual stories of God's providence in the Old Testament. You know, stories of people like Joseph and Ruth and just these many stories where you watch the crookedness of their lives and then you see the wonder of what God is doing. And we have the great story of the redemption of Israel from slavery. We have the account of the exile of God's people uh, as judgment for their sins and how God mercifully brought them back. But what we have that the readers of Ecclesiastes, the original readers, did not have is we have the greater story of redemption in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. In the cross, we have seen how God works mind-blowing good from horrific evil. More often than not, God does not tell us what he's doing in our suffering. But he has revealed to us who he is. And we know that God is for us because Jesus chose adversity in our place. Jesus actually taught us, he gave us a case in point of considering the work of God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Here, he's teaching us not just God's sovereign rule, but God's fatherly care. That's what we sang about this morning. I've known you as a father. You know, that's how we've experienced the goodness of God, as, as his fatherly care towards us. Thus, Mahaney and Whitaker can remind us, while suffering may be out of our control, God is managing every moment for our good and his glory. We may not see what he is doing, but we are supposed to consider that he is doing it. This often quoted promise in Romans 8:28 secures our hearts. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things, the day of prosperity, the day of adversity, and the mundane days between. But here's the thing. If you have not looked to Jesus for salvation, I cannot extend the comfort of this promise to you. I can affirm that he is sovereign over your life and circumstances, but I can't say that all things work together for your good. I know that you'll be glorified in your life, but that may not be as your savior. It might be as your judge. 
But even today, you can know that salvation is yours as a gift of His grace if you will turn to and trust in Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-6, the Apostle Paul says this to a very young church. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He goes on to say, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Joy, even in affliction, through the Holy Spirit. If you believe the gospel, you can know today that God has chosen you and that he, that he has been managing your every moment for your good and for His glory. Wisdom learns from the end of life. Wisdom lives sensibly throughout life. And wisdom looks to God's sovereign work. How can we summarize these three truths about wisdom in these verses in Ecclesiastes? Here's my attempt. Though we cannot control life or comprehend God's rule, wisdom provides us with a better perspective and path for living. Though we cannot control life or comprehend God's rule, wisdom provides us with a better perspective and path for living. We don't have to rail against the limits that God has imposed. We don't have to live in fear of the future. We don't have to be ruled by our instinctive responses to the ups and downs of life. His word illuminates the path of wisdom. It instructs us to live each of the few days of our lives with the end of our earthly days in view. It informs our response to good days and bad days, calling us to be joyful and thoughtful pilgrims who are not looking back wistfully but looking ahead to the unknown, confident of God's sovereign care. Jesus is with us by His Spirit. His Spirit lives within us. The Spirit assures us of the love of God and our Heavenly Father comforts us in every affliction. Wisdom is not the wherewithal to live independently of God. It's how we hold His hand in humble trust. So as we scatter to face another week, we can say in the words of John Newton, "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.